Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, we'll be talking about the deficit, or more specifically, the commodity deficit in the Soviet Union. This is an interesting subject because recently I just thought about all the things that we have now that really seemed weird at the time, and it turned out that, yeah, the Soviet Union truly was a weird place in this matter. Army had everything, but um, every person that I've ever spoken about this they just keep telling me how, well, they lacked everything in total, depending on the year, really, and how you had to wait in lines to buy stuff. We spoke about this in the last episode as well, just a bit about how stuff was delivered and how people tried to go around the system. So let's dig deeper into this. This whole subject arose when, um, when I got a weird question from a youngster who just happened to be listening to this show, and um, he asked me how much did um, delivering a pizza cost in the USSR? And then I was stunned a bit because, well, the USSR didn't have pizza deliveries at all. However, I was wrong because I previously had thought the Soviet Union didn't have pizza at all. But no, no, apparently. Apparently there was one cafe in the whole Riga that actually did have a pizza. It was in Zedwendars and it was one of those smaller joints that um, opened in the late 80s and then all closed after some time. It is open now, however. Well, there is a place there where the old pizza had been. But I digress. The Soviet Union had a whole bunch of issues, and this probably is one of those that led to its downfall at the end. Also, weirdly enough, quite a lot of people died, and we have a weird story about that one, too. But um, what is this deficit, and how did it work, and how did this impact everyday lives? This is what we're going to be talking about today. Commodity deficits, or just shortages, is a phenomenon that was inherent in the Soviet planned economy. It was a constant shortage of certain goods and services that buyers just could not purchase despite all the money that they had. In various scales and different spheres of life, the commodity deficit was characteristic of almost the entire history of the existence of the Soviet Union, and in the Brezhnev's era, formed the 
seller's economy. Producers in a trading system in a planned economy, which had lack of competition, fixed state retail prices, and, and so on, these people, all of these people who were producing something or selling something, yeah, at that time, were not financially interested in quality service, timely deliveries, advertising, attractive design, maintaining the quality of goods, or whatever. It was just out there. However, uh, I do have to mention that those who were truly believing in communism, well, they sometimes tried, but uh, they were a minority. So, no one really bothered to care, because you couldn't really get anything, and people who actually sold something in the stores, they were rude to you. They didn't have to be nice, because again, there was a massive deficit of everything. In addition, due to problems typical of the country's planned economy, even the most essential goods periodically disappeared from sale. And here I have to mention toilet paper that they produced for a bit, apparently. It was ultra-rare in Latvian SSR, at least. Some showed up in late 80s. Female hygiene products never existed whatsoever. Like, none. That was also fun. For your special days, you had um, cotton, basically, and that's about it. So, all of this stuff. Weirdly enough, this phenomenon applied not only to the production of, well, manufacture goods for mass consumption, but also, to a large extent, to large-scale industrial production. For example, in the automotive industry, the entire period of free trade and its products took under conditions of strictly limited and normalized market funds. It was all weird. In the state system of the Soviet Union, there was absolute price control for all goods and services. Accordingly, as a result of setting prices at an artificially low level, demand increased to the point where supply could not meet real needs, which led to a shortage of goods and services for which these prices were controlled. And um, Nobel laureate Milton Friedman has said, quote, We economists don't know much, but we know how to create a deficit. If you want to create a shortage of, say, tomatoes, all you have to do is pass a law that retailers can't sell tomatoes for more than two cents a pound. Instantly, you'll be short of tomatoes. There is also an opinion that scarcity is an essential property of planned economy, since central planning is unable to take into account either the huge number of commodity items or the constantly changing needs of the people. At any rate, the Soviet Union had even more problems, because, well, people have actually taken some serious look about what caused it and um, what happened here. First of all, there was geographical unevenness. Capitals and large industrial centers were supplied way better than provincial cities. That's why, for example, as mentioned in my previous episode, Moscow could have candy, same as Riga, but if you were like in Novosibirsk or something like that, nothing really happened there. Which, um, yeah, again, caused food tours to happen. People literally drove on the so-called sausage trains to go to the regional centers or Moscow to buy their goods. Secondly, well, massive social imbalances. There were the nomenclatura, the guys who had specific order tables, and people who basically were privileged. Yeah, there was a huge opportunity for members of creative unions, nomenclatura veterans, large families, the disabled. These people were taken care of. Members of creative unions only if they were on the good side of the Soviet government, that is. You know, you become a member of the creative union, which basically legalizes your rights to, well, earn money with your art. But if you 
get on the bad side of the Soviet government, then, um, well, then you get cut off from all the privileges that, that you enjoyed before. And, of course, there also was the quality of everything that declined due to improper storage, various other reasons mostly being stolen to be dealt with through blood or on the black market. The whole deficit system, as it was so endemic, yeah, is actually pretty well researched. It uh, experienced several peaks, usually accompanied by the indirect action of elements of normalized distribution, which was a card system or a coupon system. Historian Yelena Osokina writes that, <clears throat> quote, the reproduction and aggravation of the shortages was inherent in the very nature of centralized distribution, which made interruptions, crises, and cards, well, coupons basically, that allowed you to purchase something in trade chronic. The first peak of this massive shortage was caused by industrialization, the collapse of the new economic policy, the NEP, and the introduction of a new organization of the economy. There was a shortage of many consumer goods, including foodstuffs, and from the end of 1928, a multi-link card system was reintroduced in the cities. That is, they um, <clears throat> tried to normalize distribution by population groups. At the same time, the free commercial sale of these products at very high prices was preserved. This peak, as the official ideology claimed, gradually faded towards the end of the 1930s with the rise of the Stakhanov movement. Stakhanov movement being the great workers who overdid their plans by, like, an insane margin. Stakhanovitz. Then, the abolishing of the rationing system in 1935 was accompanied by a sudden, mega-sharp increase in prices by the state, which reduced consumer demand. It was preceded by the legalization of May 1932 of collective farm markets, where both collective farmers and private traders were allowed to trade, as well as the mass creation of subsidiary farms as enterprises. It is believed that the reason for this indulgence by Soviet standards was a riot in the city of Vichuga, Ivanovo region, where workers of the United Manufactory, named after Shagov, Krasin, and Krasny Profintern, well, decided to riot due to the sharp increase in the rationing rate for issuing bread from April 1st, 1932. So, yeah, their bread, you know, goes away because of the rations, and uh, that caused riots. This whole peak, well, with everything, these tiny little systems trying to control this, reached its apogee in the early 1940s. Second peak was caused by the World War II, obviously, and ended with the completion of post-war economic recovery. Again, first peak just nicely went into the second. And then there was the third peak, for which we have to blame Nikita Khrushchev. Because, yeah, Stalin was harsh and often evil, but Khrushchev just really didn't know much about economy. The third peak of the commodity deficit in the USSR was caused by the consequences of the economic reforms of the 1960s, the collapse and curtailment of Khrushchev's economic policy, and then Kosygin reform. And later, after some stabilization, in the period of perestroika, especially in, well, recent years. When, as a result of the abolition of the monopoly of foreign trade, the flourishing of speculative cooperation against the backdrop of a sharp increase in money supply that was not backed by any goods, almost all goods that were in any demand became scarce. Now, what happened after 1981, just before the collapse of the USSR, We'll get to that later. There was another nice attempt at um, fixing the deficit that really didn't end well. Despite the fact 
that the Brezhnev era was characterized by a slowdown in the pace of economic development and the formation of the prerequisites for an economic crisis, its occurrence was largely uh, artificial. This also applies to the anti-alcohol campaign and the reduction, decrease, not complete freefall, but still decrease, of oil prices. But uh, the 1987 reform dealt a decisive blow to the Soviet economy. Hello there, thank you for tuning in into another episode of the Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at rusansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to rusansov.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by Russian voiceovers. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Enjoy! When, at the end of 1987, Rizhkov presented the plan for the development of the national economy for 1988 to a meeting of the Politburo, he received approval only after, quote, the state order for many ministries was reduced immediately by one-third and in some industries by half or more of the total production. The state order meaning how much the state orders these ministries to produce per year. This meant that starting in 1988, all enterprises were able to reduce the volume of their obligatory products and sell all products produced in excess of the state order on the market at contractual prices. And um, here I'm quoting from an economist and a historian, Ostrovsky, from the book Stupidity or Treason, Investigation of the Death of the USSR, quote, According to the USSR State Statistics Committee, the profitability of goods sold at bargain prices is three times higher than the average, and exceeds 60% of the cost. For silk fabrics, it reaches 81%, linen knitwear 97%, and uh, any and all other stuff, like your laundry or your underpants or whatever, 104% of the cost. 
As a result, more than half of the increase in all profits was received due to allowances for retail prices at the enterprises of the USSR Ministry of Light Industry in the first half of the year. The consequence of this was not an increase in the quality of products, but an increase in prices. Here is what is said about this in the mentioned certificate. Quote, for example, the average retail price of a woman's winter coat in 1987 was 259 rubles against uh, 181 rubles in 1980 and 120 rubles in 1970. In Moscow, there are practically no women's winter coats for sale cheaper than 300 rubles. The Moscow Sewing Associations Salut and Vimpel switched to the production of coats at bargain prices of 450 to 600 rubles and for sometimes 650 rubles and more. On the other hand, according to the reference by the Statistics Committee, in 1987, compared to 1980, the production in kind of a number of consumer goods decreased in value. Wooden fabrics, coats, raincoats, trousers, women's underwear, knitwear, radios, refrigerators, film, thermoses, school notebooks, etc. At a number of enterprises, the reduction in production volumes reached 20-25% to or more. In the context of a shortage of goods, the process of throwing out and not producing inexpensive products from the assortment has become massive. This especially affected the range of goods for children, youth and older people. For example, the volume of production of coats priced up to 100 rubles and suits up to 80 rubles for older people and jackets for young people priced up to 40 rubles decreased by more than double. Jackets for older people costing up to 40 rubles more than three times. And then such goods necessary in everyday life as soap, synthetic detergents, home shoes, school uniforms, pencils, toothbrushes, kerosene, oatmeal, pasta, flour, literally everything, began to disappear from the shelves of stores. That is, everything on which you weren't able to get an immense, massive profit from just selling something off, instantly vanished. Because, well, you know, if you are allowed to cut off, extremely reduce the supply of the cheap available goods that people want to buy en masse, but for which you can't pocket anything, you won't be making that. You'll make the good shubas. That, um, basically will sell and um, provide some profit. Because uh, at this point, people already were starting to feel where, um, where the wind was blowing. Now, these are just the peaks. And the intervals between these peaks, the commodity deficit, the shortages, continue to exist, but it did not reach the introduction of card distribution. For example, the pre-war years passed entirely under the sign of the struggle of the Politburo, with a massive influx of buyers to large industrial centers, because the Soviet Union really enforced urbanization. Until the autumn of 1939, this getting stuff in large cities at least wasn't characterized by lacking food. Residents of villages and small towns traveled around the country in search for factories where you could buy shoes and clothes, however. From the autumn of 1939, well, lines for groceries also really began to grow. Moscow remained the center of attraction. The Moscow lines clearly had a multinational face. And um, according to the Cheka, the NKVD, in the late 1930s, Muscovites in the lines for various products that were thrown out, as they said, well, native people of the city made up no more than a third standing in these lines. During the 1938, the flow of -of out-of-town buyers to Moscow increased, and by the spring of 1939, the situation in Moscow resembled a natural disaster. 
the NKVD reported, on the night of April 13th to 14th, the total number of customers at the shops by the time they opened was 30,000 people. On the night from 16th to 17th of April, 43,800 people, etc. Crowds of thousands stood outside every major department. A similar situation repeated itself later, in the 1980s, which was the phenomena of the so-called sausage trades. The deficit arose not only due to underproduction and disconcentration of new buyers, and this whole situation where people on the countryside were way less supplied, but also it was because of massive troubles with logistics. However, everything was um, a bit strange with everything. This um, is from Pravda, number 339, of December the 10th, 1933. Quote, Warehouses are overflowing with goods. The main freight station on Leningrad and the stations of the warehouses of the clientele are clogged with consumer goods, which are not systematically exported and distributed. Since the Okyabrskaya factory and the rail station does not provide wagons, huge deposits of goods were formed, intended to be sent out to the countryside. According to the report, as of November 30th, there were over 800 wagons of consumer goods on the Oktyabrskaya Railroad. The road administration does not have more recent data. However, according to Bargolin, the head of the freight section of the road, the situation has not changed significantly today. The warehouses of uh, Soyuz Trans, the main consigner of Leningrad consumer goods, are so overcrowded that they are unable to accept goods from factories. Dozens of notebooks, soap, ready-made clothes, shoes, machines, matches, and cigarettes are waiting to be sent. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes, even though the products were made, the logistics just um, messed up because of lack of documentation and, well, other various issues. In the face of interruptions in the provision of certain goods, the population began to stockpile, increasing purchases and thereby exacerbating the situation with the shortage. You know, just as with COVID, panic buying was clearly a thing. In the early 1960s, there was a shortage of bread and some other types of food. One of the reasons for which was the drought. In the 1963, the issue of introducing car distribution was discussed, and in many regions it actually was introduced. Flour and cereals were given out to residents of settlements according to lists once a month in strictly limited quantities. The deficit was largely eliminated thanks to the increase, in retail in particular for bread, meat and butter. There is an opinion that the depth of commodity shortage in the early 1960s is clearly characterized by a document on material incentives for the first cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. Along with his cash reward of 15,000 rubles, he and his relatives were given dozens of items of clothing and other goods. Which means he was actually listed out the benefits he would get for being the first man into space. The level of commodity deficit in different areas of the Soviet Union, of course, varied greatly. Each settlement in the Soviet Union was assigned to one of the four supply categories. Special, first, second, and third. Advantages were given to the special and the first list, which included Moscow, Leningrad, large industrial centers, national republics, and resorts of significance. That means Riga and Urmal were included, but it got really bad here as well. And later on, Moscow and Leningrad were, of course, hit too. The inhabitants of these special cities were to receive bread, flour, cereals, meat, fish, butter, sugar, tea, and eggs first from the centralized supply and at higher rates. Consumers of the special and first lists accounted for only 40% of those supplied, 
but received, well, basically 80% of everything going to the Soviet Union. Worst of all, food and industrial goods were supplied to the population of um, whole Russian Socialist Republic, which is a part of the USSR. Yeah, the people in the remote areas of what we now call today Russia, but which was the RSFSR, these were supplied quite poorly. The second and third supply lists included small and non-industrial towns. They were supplied from the central funds by only bread, sugar, cereals and tea, moreover at much lower rates than the residents of cities on the other two lists. The rest of the products had to be taken, quote, from local resources. And again, this was throughout the whole time period. I just happened to have quite a lot of info in year 1934. And um, a memory about this is, quote, from a report on the year 1934. At the moment, we have 40.3 million people on the centralized supply, including their families. The special list, 10.3 million people. The first tier list, 11.8 million people. The second list, 9.6 million. The third list, 8.6 million. Shortage of raw materials and components in the industry, and their distribution to manufacturers according to state orders, led to the emergence of a special case of suppliers, so-called pushers, who, with the help of connections and gifts, can um, get literally everything from suppliers. Those were highly valued by directors of enterprises. Yes, there was a special kind of position in your factory that could get you stuff from which you could make other stuff. Yeah, this wasn't an official position, however, it existed everywhere. The deficit concerned not only food, but also industrial goods. Here, too, was a distribution system. And uh, many scarce items, including cars, were raffled off in governmental lotteries. I want to give you a personal story, because the academical part is academical, however, there was a real tragic incident in 1975, which really puts a whole new perspective on what can happen in the economy of a deficit, really. And it was about chewing gum. And it might sound funny at first, but really it isn't. As everything else, as we have just heard about the deficit, foreign chewing gum was a rare thing. Sometimes the whole classroom of teenagers, if someone could get it, would just cut it up to tiny pieces and chew it. Chewing gum was begged in tourist places from visitors often specially bought gum to share with kids. This gave rise to new urban legends, which were supported by teachers and adults involved by the party just to protect young people from the pernicious influence of the West. Children and other kids, teenagers, were forced to spit out gum in public, threatened with stomach ailments, scolded at meetings, and, um, well, parents were sometimes yelled at for allowing them to use this foul Western influence. And, uh, well, truth to be told... Chewing gum could sometimes lead um, to tragedy. And I didn't know this story, but um, this is a bit tragic and uh, one of the more uglier things that we do here in the show. But see, when in 1975, the uh, youth team from Ontario, Barry Cup, gathered for a tour in the USSR to play hockey, sponsor was found very quickly. Chewing gum maker Wrigley paid for the trip and gave each player a 15-kilogram box of gum. Barry Cup planned to play five matches, two games each against the youth team of the Soviet Union and Spartak, and one against Krylia Sovietov, or Wings of the Soviets. 
At each meeting, the Canadian players handed out free gum to the audience and Wrigley photographers took pictures. By the third Barry Cup match, every Moscow school kid knew that the North Americans were treating them with rarities for free. Therefore, on March the 10th, 1975, mostly teenagers came to the meeting of the youth team of the USSR and Canadians. In total, 4.5 thousand people gathered in the stands. Not a lot for events with foreign teams, but significant amount for junior teams. Therefore, no one was worried about the organization. The director of the Sokolniki Sports Palace was not at work, so the head of the rink and his deputy also went home before the end of the game. For senior bosses, they left only the administrator on duty and a tipsy electrician who, after the match, had a turn of the light. Not a difficult task, even after a couple of glasses, the bosses considered. A separate employee was responsible for each of the four exits from the arena, and the administrator had to lock the doors after all the people had left the stands. On this spring evening, no one expected the horror that turned out in this friendly match between kids. A few minutes before the end, the Soviets were losing 2-3, to three, so some of the spectators left early as to not push the aisles. One of the spectators of the game, Alexander Goncharov, recalls, I was 17 years old. I went to the classes at the school. Lived in Sokolniki on Strominka. There were three of us. Well, we lost completely by the end and I thought, well, why we sit? And we left. We lit up. After a couple of minutes, they heard screams from the exit. We returned and the lattice door was locked. And the street lights were off. But it was crazy. And uh, it was on fire. Darkness and people gathered at the closed door from the upper platform upon which the crowd was pressing. Who placed the lock? And why? We just tried to get out. A couple of minutes before that, the match ended. The USSR national team nonetheless scored the third goal Nicolas the score. The teams dispersed to the buses and the spectators gathered to the exits. To three of the four exits. Several police officers directed people to all exits except the southeast one, which was the closest to the Canadian team's bus. Suddenly, a whisper rolled amongst the teenagers, which grew into yelling. They uh, started throwing chewing gum from the Canadian bus onto the balcony of the upper tier, but it didn't reach, and uh, it, it fell on the ground. People ran for the deficit down the stairs. They didn't know that the door on the southeast gate was adorned with a heavy padlock. Before leaving, people were met by a storage area, which looked more like a coral in the slaughterhouse. Alexei Nazarov, who was 15 years old in 1975, stated... The match ended 3-3, and as soon as the siren rang out, we rushed to the exit in order to be in time for the foreigners to board the buses. There was something else we could grab. If we knew that because of the chewing gum, our friend Vovka would die, we would not go there. The crowd rushed down to the locked exit. The first rested against the door and suddenly realized that someone turned off the lights in the stadium. Those running in the tail did not see that the people below ran into a dead end. They pushed more and more, pushing the first into the iron doors, concrete walls and floor. Another person, who was 16 at the time, remembered... I was lying in a dump almost at the very exit on someone's knee. It rested on my very solar plexus and I could hardly breathe. He did not lose consciousness, but there were prerequisites for this. Guys I knew pulled me out. I ended up on the left of the exit, and the bulk of the people died on the right and a little higher. The people pushed back. Of course, people were not aware of what was happening below. And, um, it was a bit crazy. Another memory is, quote, After the match, my husband and I went to the exit. When we were 20 steps left, then at the stairs I saw how some man lifted a boy and shouted stop, but the people still pressed on. 
I managed to get past the fallen ones. Coming out on the pavement, I began to look for my husband. People lay in layers nearby, and the police tried to pull at least someone out of the rubble. Husband was pulled out, and they began to give him artificial respiration. Then I got on the bus with him, and we went to the Ostromovsky Hospital, where my husband died. It was all crazy. Apparently, someone had turned on lights. It had started fire there as well. A young guy ran right over the heads and bodies of the people who had fallen at the entrance. He jumped down from somewhere above, reached the gate and shouted, Give us the children! <sighs> Hands were sticking out right from the mass of bodies. One guy grabbed some girls and boys and threw them through the gate to Alexander Goncharov and his two friends who went out to smoke a few minutes before the end of the match. A few minutes later, the gate broke and opened. Three rows from the crowd fell on into the street. The dead and suffocating people poured on each other as more and more fans fell on them. Sasha Goncharov, one of the people who were there, saw a classmate who was lying on a corpse and several more people fell on top of him. The guy squeezed out, pull me out. Sasha did not pull out a classmate and called for help. He couldn't do it himself. The boy was saved only by their combined efforts. 21 people died in the chewing gum stampede and after in the resulting fire. 13 of them were under 16 years old. 11 victims out of them studied at the 367th school. Soviet news did not report a word on this. Anything on them. It was as if there was no tragedy. Vladimir Pahomov, a journalist for Soviet Sport, wrote, I went to the city sports committee and said that rumors were spreading around the city about an incredible number of victims in Sokolniki, and the media were silent. Zero response. For a long time, the head of the sports sector of the Moscow City Committee, Sergei Galin, refused to tell me, even confidentially, not for publication, how many fans died in Sokolniki, and how many were taken away in an ambulance. Then he allowed me to give, on the pages of Evening Moscow, a little information without comment. Before publication, uh, I had to pay a visit to the city committee of the party. Later, it was told I was not allowed to print anything. We consulted. I heard the favorite phase of the party workers. Well, perpetrators were found quickly by the investigation. According to official version, the employee in charge of the southeast gate, for some reason, closed the gate and went home minutes before the end of the game. And a drunk electrician mixed up the switches and turned off the lights in the entire arena. In the summer of 1975, the court sentenced the director of Sokolniki, Alexander Borisov, his deputy, and the head of the department of the Sokolnichesky District Police Department to three years in prison for negligence that caused death of people. Six months later, everyone was amnesticized, and Borisov received the post of director of Luzhniki during the 1980 Olympics. This is crazy. Really. This was one of the incidents which didn't really understand or know about. But uh, it's kind of like in the TV series Chernobyl, where Lugasov states that uh, the director explodes because of lies. Well, people die because of such weirdness, too. And um, I guess I'll wrap up this time with the story, because there was a lot to take in. And deficits and this whole plant economy thing didn't work out. Next time, however, we'll be taking a look at how in the 1991... They tried to fix it just before the collapse of the USSR, and how it quite proudly led to the whole collapse and massive support for the absolute and devastating complete collapse of the Soviet Union. Join us next time, and um, after that, 
We'll be back for an interview about a book that I wanted to do a while ago, earlier this month, but we ran into some technical troubles. До свидания, товарищи. And don't forget to, well, support the show on patreon.com slash border, or just go to our whole page, theeasternborder.lv, and click the donate button to support the show. Also, follow us on social media, and uh, let us know. We answer all of your emails. Happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory.